Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, you know, Courtney, dining out is a treat many of us look forward to and enjoy. Taking a break from the kitchen to let someone else cook and serve a meal can be big fun. Yet, even in this seemingly innocent activity, systemic racism is at play. One way to spoil my appetite is knowing there were hundreds of American restaurants that made no bones about the practice and policy of using racial stereotypes and slurs in their names and themes. As the author of the book, Burgers in Blackfoot Face put it, some white restaurateurs believed, quote, racism makes food taste better. Now, it's hard to believe that there were and still are restaurants that play on racial stereotypes to lure in customers, Aunt Carol. But what's the thinking behind this so-called marketing? Well, author Ne Oyo Equate suggests two reasons for this. First, Naming a restaurant a derogatory racial slur is a sure way to keep Black African-Americans from going to them. I know it would keep me out. And secondly, Quete says, quote, in the manner that lynchings invited a crowd, these restaurants make a very public display of racism, a display to buttress the country's racial hierarchies and the topmost position of whiteness within it. Customers who patronize these restaurants can share in the consumption of Black domination with others. Kawate also explains that by 1935, Jim Crow was already established in the South. So those fears about, you know, racial mixing or threats to racial purity by Black servants had pretty much gone away. And it folded over to the notion that a Black woman's natural place is in the kitchen, in service, and that really came to the forefront. And that's what basically started an idea and stereotype that somewhat still persists today, that all Black women have this inherent ability to cook. And we all know that's not true. I've burnt boiled water many times. (laughs) Yeah, I've had to work pretty hard at getting a a good meal on the table, too. So it's not my, uh, my skill either. But in times of slavery and all the way up to civil rights, some white people even believe that um, servitude was a preordestined station by God for black people. And it wasn't just the mammies, maids and Aunt Jemimas who were happy to greet and serve and feed white families who went from owning them to employing them. This idea of natural servitude was placed on the entire African-American race. And it was reinforced with ideas from movies, postcards, advertisements and radio shows. And like we're gonna talk about today in restaurants, the one place that people are actually paid to serve and cook you a meal. So with the idea of Black people naturally being suited for service, it's no wonder these restaurants survived and thrived without an ounce of remorse from their patrons. White patrons already associated Black people with being happy, helpful servants who wanted nothing more than to please the whites that enslaved, I mean, employed them. (laughs) Yes, Courtney, that space between enslaved and employed was marginal when it came to Black African Americans. In fact, Ferris University's Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia has an extensive collection of racist objects that trace the history of the stereotyping of African Americans and depicting them as subservience. So with that in mind, let's start with the happy, servile woman and one of the most familiar stereotypes, Mammy. 
Now, of all the Black representations found in American white-owned restaurants, the mammy figure has been by far the most common. The term mammy was reserved for Black women exclusively, and they were depicted usually as broadly grinning figures meant to be a symbol of hospitality universally accepted by whites. Now, early restaurants using Mammy as part of their name and or their visual trademark, they actually started appearing in the 1920s, now both in the North and the South, including states like Massachusetts, California, Pennsylvania, and Florida, among other states. And oftentimes the word Mammy would be paired up with the word shanty or shack or log cabin. And that name and trademark uh, effort continued in use all the way through the 1970s and even up until the present day, which we're going to talk about later. And what was once just a Southern idea, the Mammy, was now a nationwide perception of Black women. Now, in her book, Clinging to Mammy, the Faithful Slave in the 20th Century America, Mickey McIla explains it like this. Many whites who lived in settings far removed from the American South devoured images of Mammy from books and movies, watching hungrily and with pleasure these mythical tales of plantations replete with Black workers who knew their place. And the worst offender is my problematic fave (laughs) gone with the wind yes yes we have to um forgive you for your uh guilty pleasure but i always tell people it's my favorite fantasy movie like think lord of the rings harry potter that's how fanciful i think gone with the wind is. okay that's a good way to think about it now to it's to the point though with some people though where i see fantasy and mythical creatures or something like that many people believe that hattie mcdaniel's Oscar-winning portrayal, maybe this is a tip of the cap to her acting, but her Oscar-winning portrayal of Mammy and Gone with the Wind was the actual experience of Black women during slavery. So when they hear, you know, that's offensive, they don't get it because Hattie McDaniel showed them something different. And they'll even get angry when you explain that Gone with the Wind and books and movies like it are nothing more than Southern Belle fan fiction. Yep, purely fantasy, purely fantasy. Now, one of the most egregious examples of the mammy-themed restaurant was Aunt Fanny's Cabin Restaurant, which was outside Atlanta, Georgia. Now, the story of of this log cabin is uh, it was supposedly an antebellum slave cabin that belonged to an ancient Black woman, Aunt Fanny. And I bristle at that name because, as you know, my aunt was also named Fanny. But and that Fanny is was nobody's person. Oh, no. Be, no, 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 no. And no antebellum slave cabin for sure. Her home was pristine and absolutely beautiful. But the whole backstory of this woman turns out to be pure fiction. Yet the restaurant owners insisted on telling it to promote, to promote that eatery. Now, if you went to the restaurant, in addition to seeing signed celebrity portraits of people like Walt Disney, and Liberace covering the walls. Shockingly, if you looked closely, one of those prints was of an antique handbill actually advertising a slave auction. Now here's how the Aunt Fanny's restaurant worked. After hostesses showed their guests to their tables, a barefoot little black African-American boy about 10 years old would appear. He carried a signboard with a large hole in the middle of it. He'd stick his head through the hole and then turn toward the guest displaying a painted menu on the board. And the child then recited the menu options. I just get sick even talking about it. This is getting real close to roots and I don't like it. Yes, 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 yes. It's anyway, the waitresses were all black African-American women dressed in Mammy dresses, aprons, and headscarves like Mammy in the movie Gone with the Wind. Now, periodically, get this, they'd add to this whole charade. Costumed Black African-American employees would dance and perform songs like The South Will Rise Again, or they would dance around urging the crowd to join in singing Dixie. 
Now, again, I, the more I even think about this place, the angrier I get. But I have to also laugh because I can't imagine that this was popular, but obviously it was. Now, the menu boys, those little 10-year-old boys I told about, they continued doing their routine until 1987. So these little boys, about 10, well under the age when they should have been working in restaurants, finally, Georgia's child labor laws finally entered the 20th century. But surprisingly enough, Aunt Fanny's cabin didn't close its doors for good until 1992. And to put that in perspective, in 1987, I was five. Okay. In 1992, I was 10. Mm. And it, you know, it's, that's crazy. But the fact that people went there makes leads into my second point. There are people who probably miss that restaurant and restaurants like it, claiming that it was all in good fun. My, I'm giving the side eye and I get people have to pay the bills. The light bills always do. But I'm not dancing or doing any kind of jigging around to that. But I mean, hey, I don't know what those people's financial struggles were at the time. So but to quote burgers and blackface time and time again, we see white people with a psychic or material investment in these racist restaurants and that portray the humanizing of black people as something innocent or good natured fun. And those of us who reject these images are seen as humorless at best. We don't get the joke or mendacious militant threats to the social order at worst. So saying, I don't want to go to a restaurant that has a slave auction handbill on the wall. And I prefer not to see black barefoot black boys with my menu. I'm a militant person. But it wasn't just restaurants. And Carol, remember the big uproar about Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. You would have thought people were really the nieces and nephews of <laughs> Uncle Ben and Aunt Jemima when you saw them, you know, taking the pictures. And they just could not relate that this imagery is problematic. And the contents in the same in the box are still the same. Well, indeed, indeed, people cling to cherished images and memories, regardless of who they offend. But, Courtney, it's not just white people who hold these types of memories. I have to admit, I have my own Aunt Jemima story that at first seemed to have a positive spin. Now, my babysitter, when I was just a little girl, was named Miss Sarah, and she was a wonderful woman whom I absolutely adore. She was a heavyset lady with a striking resemblance to the picture of the pancake box Aunt Jemima. Now, as an advertising promotion, Quaker Oats would travel around the country and they hired Aunt Jemima lookalikes in cities around America to work at pancake kiosks in grocery stores. And they would be in there making and giving out taste tests of the product. Well, you've probably guessed it. My babysitter, Miss Sarah, was chosen to be Aunt Jemima at one of our local grocery stores. And believe it or not, the community was thrilled. We thought she was a real celebrity. And of course, I was just a little girl and I was just enthralled with the fact that she had been chosen for this and it was, you know, a special thing. Now, of course, years later, when I look back on it with more discerning eyes, I realized how demeaning the whole thing was. Now, the only saving grace was Miss Sarah had been paid well for her stint as Aunt Jemima. Now, since we're on the subject of offending, in the 1930s, Topsy's Roost should do the trick. Now, it opened near San Francisco and like Aunt Fanny's Cabin, combined the mammy theme and children. The name came from a child character that most people probably recognize from the Harriet Beecher Stowe novel, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Now, this place, Topsy's Roost, was an arena-sized wooden barn, and it was packed floor to rafters with what they call coops. And they regularly served as many as 900 people a night on weekends, even during the Great Depression, Courtney. Now, the coops were filled with people all eating chicken and biscuits and salad with their hands. That's with gross. Their hands. That's gr I'm sorry. I, it's gross. I'm no sorry. utensils. It was the house rules. You had to eat your food with your hands. Now, the Whitney's who owned the restaurant, they did a lot of advertising, almost all of which included minstrel style cartoons of little black girls. 
they had a car that they actually had uh, driven around the city and it was built to resemble a chicken coop and it was covered in, in chickens. And it included several derogatory depiction, depictions of black children with wide white rimmed eyes, exaggerated mouths and bare feet. The same kind of negative caricatures were also hung inside the restaurant near the roof. So it's gross and terrifying. Because so, <laughs> that's all of the above. Terrifying. Now, A. Carol, that's so bad, but I am sure, and take this with the utmost sarcasm, that it gets classier from here. Indeed, it does. She said, tongue in cheek. <laughs> Let's skip over to Mammy's cupboard. Now, this is a Natchez Mrs. And I say is, it is not in the past. This is a Natchez, Mississippi roadside restaurant with a 30 foot tall mammy figure that serves as the restaurant's building. Now to get in to eat, patrons enter the restaurant through and actually dine under the enormous black woman's skirts. Now, Mammy was built by Henry Godet in 1939, 1940, somewhere in there. Now, he had a gas station and wanted to have a roadhouse that would capitalize on, again, the gone with the wind craze. Here we go. You're a thing, Courtney. Oh, this is bad. (laughs) Now, one tale is that Mammy at first was designed as a white Southern belle. But Godet transfer, uh, transformed the big lady into black from white because he thought a black woman was more symbolic of food and eating. Now, despite changing hands over the years and almost being raised for a highway, Mammy's cupboard is still operating and receiving rave- reviews on Yelp. One reviewer, though, had the good sense to write, quote, This is the most racist, putrid restaurant I've ever seen. A mammy was a slave who was forced to breastfeed white children at the expense of her own children, unquote. Well, Aunt Carol, I will counter that with a five-star review, no less. The reviewer said this, truly Americana, where else can your wife give you permission to eat lunch under another woman's skirt? The food and service were worth the trip. One more item checked off my bucket list. Mm. Now, knowing what we know of the black female experience, the enslaved black female experience, the idea of a white man, any white man under your skirt is the absolute last thing you would ever as a black enslaved woman even think of putting on the bucket list at Mm. all. Mm-hmm. No, but I'll tell you, as Artisanio Hall would say, things that made you go, mm. now it tells a lot about a person's character to think that eating a meal under a woman's skirt was something to do before you die. Too bad that guy didn't kick the bucket before stopping at Mammy's cupboard. But speaking of bucket list, many people have a visit to Disneyland on their list, but it's hard to fathom. In 1955, the happiest place on earth opened probably the best known of all the Mammy restaurants, Aunt Jemima's Pancake House, a fixture in frontier land for decades. And I know you're a Disney fan, Courtney. Oh, yes, I, I definitely am. And I am definitely aware. And our listeners remember this from our other podcast, but I know you're gonna go in depth of how sketchy this was. Oh, just a little bit deeper, just a little bit. Now the restaurant was under the sponsorship and trademark of the Quaker Oats Company. And um, as an equal opportunity offender, two other eating places in Frontierland were Swiss Chicken Plantation and Casa de Fritos, both reflected name brands with a level of racial stereotyping. Now in 1960, Quaker Oats, I guess they figured things were pretty popular down there in Disneyland. They began franchising Aunt Jemima's Kitchens, and the first one opened in the Chicago suburb of Skokie, Illinois. And I think we all know that's well known for racial strife. Now, in 1963, there were 21 of these restaurants operating in the U.S., plus 
one each in Canada, uh, Canada and England. Now, among the states, get this, Courtney, New York State led with seven Aunt Jemimas in just the first few years of opening. Now, pancake restaurants were pretty profitable. Uh, the, there was a real high profit margin. You got to figure all we're talking about is some flour and water and, you know, just a little bit of baking ingredients. And so they were the latest food trend in chain eateries at that time. And there were an estimated 150 pancake places around the country. Now, one of Aunt Jemima's franchisees, Pancake Kitchens Incorporated, they had optimistic plans to open 36 units in the eastern U.S. They were ready to make some money they on some pancakes. They were ready to make some, some dollars. <laughs> yeah, they were. <laughs> flapjacks were going to be turned into greenbacks. Now, civil rights groups objected to the racial stereotyping of these restaurants. And of course, the NAACP, as they've done in the past, they led the protest joined by the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE. And they, they criticized Aunt Jemima for her degrading costume, calling her, quote, a negative stereotype of a Negro subservient to a white family. Now, in 1968 and 1969, now I was, just, I was a teenager back then, so this is during my lifetime, so Aunt Jemima restaurants was still open. Um, at that time, a number of them actually closed. And almost as if they'd gone into the witness protection program, the restaurant in Grand Rapids, Ms. Uh, Michigan became Colonial Kitchen, while one in Mount Prospect, Illinois was renamed Village Inn Pancake House. And many across the country became part of the Calico Kitchens chain. In 1970, okay, remember 1970, you weren't around, but I was. <laughs> Disneyland finally ended its contract with Quaker Oats and renamed its Aunt Jemima restaurant Magnolia Tree Terrace, hint, hint, changing that in 1971 to River Bell Terrace. Hmm, that's suspicious. Yes, it's not very too sus far. Very suspicious, very suspicious, but I will let it go. Now, Aunt Carol, the mammy trope seemed to play a large part in the restaurant business, but African-American men have not escaped being used in the promotion and creation of these racist eateries. Oh, to be sure, my dear niece, Black African-American men were not spared. In 1957, this is one of my favorites of making branding mistakes, but two white men from Southern California were brainstorming a name for their new restaurant, Sam Battistone Sr. and Newell Bonnet said they wanted a name that was catchy and familiar to the working and middle-class families that they were going to try to attract. Now, what they did is they combined Battistone's first name with the first two letters of Bonnet's last name, and they christened their new restaurant Sambo's. Now, Okay. All right. All right. They were, they were pretty creative, pretty creative, but unfortunate choice for them, Courtney, because by 1957, the name Sambo already had a long and controversial history. Since as far back as the 1500s, the name had been used to denote a Black man. And by the 19th century, Sambo had become an archetypal degrading character in literature and minstrel shows. Sambo was the typical plantation slave who was docile and irresponsible, loyal but lazy, humble but chronically given to lying and stealing. Now, given the history of that name, you'd think the owners would have avoided it at all costs, but they actually doubled down by playing off the racial stereotype. For example, the paintings that adorned Sambo's Pancake House were a retelling of the hugely popular children's book, Little Black Sambo. Now the book had been a runaway hit complete with racially caricatured illustrations uh, such as Sambo being portrayed as a pickaninny and Black Mumbo as Aunt Jemima. 
Now, eventually, civil rights leaders and town councils began to object to the restaurant with the racially charged name appearing in their town. And in the late 70s, and I remember these, protests and lawsuits challenging the Sambo's name began in Virginia, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Ohio, and Michigan. So it was, it was spreading. And over time, Sambo's began to fade from the restaurant horizon. Now, in 2020, not that long ago, one year, if you're listening to this in 2021, the restaurant in Santa Barbara, California, which was the chain's original and only store, finally decided to change its name amid widespread protests around the nation following the death of George Floyd. And at the time of our recording, the owners had not chosen a new name, but the Sambo sign had been covered over with the symbols for peace and the word love. Now, I, there was even a Sambo's in our hometown of Johnstown, Pennsylvania at mm-hmm. one time. Oh, yeah. And when it was brought up in a, a Facebook nostalgia group about the town, the few Black African-Americans who were in the group, and I mean, there are few because of reasons but um um, they vividly remembered not going there their parents not patronizing the establishment because they knew what that word meant but the the whites in the group the white people in the group defended the racially insensitive name choice to the hill you know saying it's not racist it's the owner's nickname well here's a thought if your nickname is also a racial slur don't name your restaurant after it. Simple as that. <laughs> Sound advice, my dear niece. Now, there were so many distastefully named restaurants, Courtney, far too numerous to tell about. But I had to add one more to the dishonorable mention list. And that is Richard's Restaurant and Slave Market. And appropriately enough, It is or was located in the sundown town of Berwyn, Illinois. And if you don't know what a sundown town is, that was a town that uh, Black people, Black African-Americans were told, you better be out of town before sundown or something bad is going to happen to you. So it was in uh, the sundown town of Berwyn, Illinois, near the infamous Cicero, Illinois. And I think you, our listeners may recall, uh, are talking about Cicero and its uh, heinous history. And so that name, it, it took me aback. Richard's Restaurant and Slave Market. I'll tell you what. However, however, there's another restaurant with an even more derogatory name and history directed at Black African-American men. So I'm going to toss it back to you, Courtney, to tell us all about that infamous spot with the awful word coon in its name. Well, thank you for that introduction, eh, Carol. But I know you and our listeners have been appalled to the, uh, hopefully appalled, or at least questioning the choices of not only the restaurant owners who came up with these racist concepts. I don't even want to call them crazy, but these racist concepts, but not only the owners, but the patrons who went to these restaurants. But I think the restaurant that I'm going to talk about and share with everyone today pretty much takes the cake. It checks all the boxes. It's got the name with the racial slur, stereotypical menu options and decor, along with memorabilia, the restaurant is so racist that it has its own exhibit in the Ferris State University's Jim Crow Museum of Racist Memorabilia. And it's been dubbed by the Seattle Civil Rights and Labor Project as Seattle's beacon of bigotry. So with no further ado, let's talk about the Coon Chicken in who we who we I mean it has run all it's won all the awards it all has the won awards. all the awards it is swept so. racial award season because it is bad mm, mm, mm. now I highly encourage our listeners to look up pictures of this infamous eatery and I'm gonna try to paint as many pictures as I can with my voice but as they say a picture is still worth a thousand words. Now, much like Mammy's Cupboard in Natchez, Mississippi, the Coon Chicken Inn, you know, capitalized on problematic imagery. 
with the coon character and the stereotype of black men being lazy, but jovial, shiftless chicken lovers and thieves who if not properly put in their place would run amok. Now, the coon character was used in every aspect of marketing from menus to matchbooks and even some crazier things that I'm going to get into later. But the the piece de resistance was the 12 foot gigantic head of the smiling black man in a porter's cap, tipping it to customers, complete with huge red lips and toothy grin that spelled out chicken coon in on his teeth winking and inviting patrons to enter his mouth if they wanted the coon fried chicken that awaited within <laughs> this <laughs> i can't help but laugh because it's crazy but you have to wonder about people who would who would go into a place this that looked like this but uh, it looks like the more. entrance to a haunted house Halloween haunt. It's terrifying. Oh my. But people, oh my. people loved it. Now, before we start on the restaurant, let's look briefly at the coon stereotype and where it came from. Now, originally, um, it was associated with white backcountry folk, and then it shifted to describe from describing a country rube to a very derogatory term for African American men and women. And what really zipped the term to his success, and I use the word zip, but the character was Zip Coon. Hmm. Now, Zip Coon was a pop popular minstrel character, and his role was of the uppity black man who thought that he could outsmart and fit in with white people now that he was no longer a slave and quote unquote educated. He dressed outlandishly in a faux upper class manner and tried to speak like white people, but always looked clownish. And his plans to outsmart the white man never worked. And he was always put in his place uh, by the end of the show by his white superiors. This always eased the fear of whites who saw free blacks coming into their own. And the idea of having to compete with blacks for jobs was now a true fear of poor whites. Now, according to cultural critic John Straussenbaugh, the black urban dandy or the N-word who acts white, but is always put in his place uh, at the end of the show just reinforces white supremacy and calms the fear of white men, of black men finally reaching equality with whites. Okay, so Zip Coon was a way of making white people feel better and not fear uh, black men who might actually get educated and take their jobs. So Zip Coon was a way of saying, stay in your place. Stay in your place. You can try to dress like us, but you look foolish. You can try to talk like us, but you don't you don't fit in. And black people don't really like you either because you think you're so you know better than everybody. But we'll remind you that you're black and you're never going to be equal. So it was and it was always at the expense of a joke. Mm. So it the, to calm the fear of what they were seeing on the outside, educated black people. Well, you know, we know how it's going to turn out. Their plans are always going to fail. Got you. Now, as early as 1919, the Southern minstrel-themed fried chicken restaurants were attracting Seattleites. So they already had a taste in their mouth for these types of fried chicken restaurants. <laughs> so, to, so to speak. <laughs> they were, if it's racist and it's chicken, we're there if it's in Seattle. We're there. Now, according to Hattie Graham Horrocks' Guide to Seattle Restaurants, these restaurants were for people who wish to drive out of town for the occasional dinner. So places like My Southern Inn, renowned for frying chicken in the window, in plain sight of passersby, became one of the popular locations. Soon to follow was Bob's Place in 1923 and Mammy Shack. And you talked oh. about how they would add, you know, Shack onto mm -hmm. Mammy, but Mammy Shack uh, was also a chicken spot people would go to. Though historian John J. Jackal argues that most of these roadside restaurants had names like Mammy Shack or Southern Inn, they were quite utilitarian, but few like uh, the Chicken Coon Inn or CCI or Coon Chicken Inn would embrace the more fanciful, pragmatic architectural design. So don't just think it was the Coon Chicken Inn that had these fanciful architecture. There were other restaurants, mm -hmm. but this oh, one yeah, yeah. stood out. 
Yeah, and in fact, that that the idea of the programmatic architecture, that's um, in architecture history, you know, we see, and one of my favorites that I go to in LA is the is Randy's Donuts. It's a big donut. It looks, it's this giant donut, and it's advertising what it uh, is selling. But I don't have to walk through the mouth and teeth to get my donuts. So anyway. I'm a smiling black gentleman with a tip of the cap. Like it's it, when you look at it, listeners, it's terrifying. Mm. Now, the the Coon Chicken Inn was founded in 1925 in Salt Lake City, Utah, by Maxon and Adelaide Graham. Um, and it had several restaurants. It had two in Utah and they used the, the large mouth facade, but it was not as big as its crown jewel in its first Seattle location. And that once sat on Old Bothell Highway. Now that opened in 1930 and Lester, uh, Lester Maxim Graham and his name, full name is Lester Maxim Graham, vigorously promoted the new restaurant that received prominent news coverage in the Seattle Times. So on August 31st, 1930, an advertisement for the Coon Chicken Inn took up almost a full page in the Seattle Times under the heading Coon Chicken Inn opened in Seattle and it had many small short columns underneath it Coon Chicken ask anyone who came from the south now the article then went on to define Coon Chicken as the way the fowl is cooked by real old-fashioned mammies okay gotta get mammy in there Always. Another advertisement article read as followed. Highway Resort is one huge national chain, which was a lie because at that time there was only the one Salt Lake City location because one had burned down. Well, advertisement always has a little bit of, you know, exaggeration in it. You know, other articles said in is built from local materials. Utah folks are the champions of fried chicken, which goes against the advertisement, because <laughs> if it's the chicken made by real mammies, is it the people from uh, I digress? Yeah, well, no. Utah, I, I don't think Utah was a southern state. But anyway, I, but I know anyway, where you're going. No, another article said telephone will bring chicken to your home mm. and parking space is provided at the end for 500 autos. Now, for the African-Americans in Seattle, this was just a reminder of where they were not wanted unless in a domestic or servile capacity. And that was on the city's north end, which was filled with neighborhoods that had hostility and those restrictive housing covenants that we've talked about several times on several episodes about real estate and housing. But even though African-Americans knew they weren't welcomed at the Coon Chicken Inn, it didn't mean that they could escape the Coon Chicken Inn logo. And it was that man's face from the entrance, smiling and tipping his cap um, in that toothy, red-lipped fashion. Not only would the advertisement be in newspapers where they could read about it, uh, the Coon Chicken Inn's method of delivery, remember they would bring chicken to your door, Mm -hmm. was delivered in something called the coon car oh okay similar to topsy's little car so yes, but they so, weren't they weren't delivering food they were just advertising but coon chicken and took it another took level another step so before uber eats grubhub and door Jet dash the coon chicken in had the coon car the coon car mm. <laughs> now orders were filled by a delivery man driving the coon car which brought piping hot crisp delicious chicken to any part of the city and right quickly too and right quickly what... too i love the way that sounds <laughs> right quickly too. right quickly not that's wrong the advertisement advertised and plastered on the logo of the coon car was that face of that haunting uh, you know, Porter tipping his hat and it could infiltrate any part of the city from 10 o'clock in the morning to 2 a.m. the next. So black people, white people didn't matter. The coon car was driving around and you had to look at that awful stereotype. You had of- to look at, I don't see a lot of people in the black neighborhood ordering from coon chicken no, in, no. but just having this like, oh my goodness, where does it go? It looks, somebody's ordering You know, that's I digress. Now, according to restaurant historians and critics, the the inn served fairly pedestrian menu items, oysters, ham and eggs, burgers, chili sandwiches and desserts. 
But wait, its signature dish was coon fried chicken, mm. which came in several forms. Okay, so they made this um a focus here. Okay, they made so. it a focus, and they were looking to feed all types of appetites. You could get the coon chicken special for a dollar fifty, which included French fries and a salad, along with hot buttered Parker rolls and preserves. Now, if you had an extra fifty cents. You could, for a whole $2, you could partake in the coon chicken dinner, which came with consomme, fruit, or a chef salad. Mm. Now, for people watching their diet or for little diners, they had the baby coon special, which comprised of a half chicken. And you could add whatever size that you deemed appropriate with your baby coon special. But you, you know, you were welcome there in all types of coon chicken glory. And you guessed it. The menu was shaped like a gigantic black man's face who greeted you at the door. And some in the middle spine of the two page menu had the same grinning man, this time full body dressed in an elegant former waiter's uniform, carrying on a tray, the chicken as the centerpiece. Mm. Mm-hmm. And for those who wanted to complete their night with a little bit of cocktails and dancing and music, but wait, wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. You could have your whole night here. So after consuming your coon chicken dinners, if you wanted to dance or listen to some music or have some cocktails in the basement of the inn was the Cotton Club. Further capitalizing on selling blackness to a white audience in the American West. But what about those people who worked and lived in Seattle? What about the black people who actually worked at the Coon Chicken Inn? Well, when we come back from our break, I'm going to talk about those that work there, the people in the city, and the attempts by the African American community to protest this location and have it shut down. Woo, this is this is all so much, Courtney. Now, uh, to reiterate something we talked about earlier, back in the day, restaurant owners definitely had to find creative ways to get the word out about their eateries and gimmicks to keep customers coming back. And some use what we already talked about, that programmatic architecture, giant items on their roofs or buildings shaped to look like the food being served to catch the eyes of drivers passing by. Now, of course, Topsy's and Mammy's Cupboard definitely fit this bill. But Coon Chicken in by far surpasses them all. So I need a break. I need a break. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism, See It, Say It, Confront It. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. Well, Courtney, we are back. And I can't say I have much of an appetite right now, especially not for chicken. But you promised to tell us what it was like working at Coon Chicken Inn and about the protests surrounding the restaurant. So have at it. Well, in part one, we described as lightheartedly as we could because it is sad that this place existed. But we discussed how the Coon Chicken Inn was born in Utah with its promise of authentic coon fried chicken, whatever that is, made by real Southern mammies. And it was something that was sold, an idea that was sold um, to the West west coast of america and it became even more popular when it moved to seattle washington where most of these um protests took place because where it was in utah the african-american community was non-existent and could not protest but what about the people who worked at the coon chicken inn and how did those african-americans feel about the working conditions now one person who was very vocal about the pros and the cons of working at coon chicken inn was roy hawkins who once worked as the head waiter at the seattle location after migrating to seattle during world war ii from texas 
Now, he was not a stranger to blatant racism, the horrors of Jim Crow, and race-based terror at the hands of whites living in Texas. Now, Roy attributed the restaurant's success partly to the way that it fried its chicken whole, so the chicken was actually good, but also partly to its logo, which he said was appealing to white men, women, and children who loved the funny coon imagery and the Southern-style hospitality marketed by the Grams, the people. So the food wasn't enough. You had to throw in the racist stereotype. Okay, I get to feel comfortable. I would be terrified walking through somebody's mouth. But hey, I don't know. Mr. Roy knows better than I. (laughs) Now, Roy put it like this. Being from Southern places and things, it wasn't nothing to see mockery. Black folks have always been mocked. Now, I'd be upset if somebody called me a coon to my face. Hmm. Now, like a lot of us, we've worked undesirable jobs, jobs that we did not want. And money is a motivator. And for Mr. Roy Hawkins, the $100 and $200 tips that he was taking home each night from working at the Coon Chicken Inn, you know, he could take the abuse because he was making far more than the $5 a day, $5 a day that the white bricklayers and factory workers were making. So for him, it gave him the last laugh. Yeah, you're, you know, you're making fun of me and I'm walking through this imagery, but I'm walking home with at least a hundred dollars a night. And back in that day, that was a lot of money. That was a lot of money, but it wasn't the same for all the African-American staff at the end. Now, let's not forget you were working there, which working there meant you were constantly surrounded by horrible images and symbols that spilled over into customer interaction with staff. It meant working, you know, having to abide, you know, like I said, that racial symbolism and displacement. But white diners often referred to the staff as real live coons and used racial epithets in their presence. Now, uh, Roy Hawkins remembers supervising several waiters and waitresses who could just not focus on the money and just quit, chafing under the pressure. And I would have quit, too, and probably had to be carried out in handcuffs. But, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, they just couldn't handle it. And, you know, for some diners, Hawkins and the other waiters were no more than the men characterized um, in the menus that grinned up at them, the the horrific head that greeted them at the door on the napkins. So the idea of, wow, the man from the menu was really serving me was that idea. And then I guess the N word began to fly. I don't know. But they really enjoyed the black wait staff, which is sad. Mm, now, they enjoyed it in, in a negative way. Towards in a staff. very negative way. And the restaurant brandly, branding simply just implied that the room, the dining room, was a racism zone. You know, the area in which patrons could freely engage in racist behaviors and it would be nothing, you know, no consequences would come from that. So there was pushback against the Coon Chicken Inn, um, but it wasn't as strong as, you know, I would say other protests against race, uh, racist restaurants and racist institutions, but there was some. Now, the main uh, response from the white community uh, who were not patrons of the Chicken Coon Inn was pretty much apathy. Upper class whites saw the Coon Chicken Inn as a racy place for poor whites and college kids to feel like they were eating someplace fancy. But for African-Americans, although the population was small in the city, they were not going to stay silent. They knew what Coons meant. They knew what that imagery was all about, and they were not going to stand for it. Now, the NAACP and the African-American newspaper, the Northwest Enterprise, joined forces in a two-year battle with Lester Maxim Graham over the Coon logo. The Enterprise posted a column on September 18, 1930, just a month after that, you know, media splash that the Coon Chicken Inn had done in the newspaper, the Seattle Times. And their article was titled Citizens Protest Against Coon Chicken Inn. The Northwest Enterprise informed its predominantly Black readership that Clarence R. Anderson, a Black attorney, William H. Wilson, the editor of the Northwest Enterprise and the president of the Seattle NAACP, and Horace R. 
Caton, an NAACP member and longstanding civil rights activist, were collectively filing a complaint against the Coom Chicken Inn over its advertising. The three activists demanded that the company change its method of advertisement or be charged with libel and defamation of the entire African-American race. Wow, they went for the jugglers. So what happened? Well, the NAACP and Northwest Enterprise protest against the Coon Chicken Inn took shape in a very impressive legal form. Like you said, they went for the jugular, attacking the advertising. Now, in a follow-up column in the Enterprise on September 25th, they prematurely claimed victory on the side of the protesters. It stated that Graham agreed to change the style of advertising by removing the word coon from the coon car and repainting the front of the CCI door um, from red to black, and also canceling an order of 1,000 automobile tire covers and put pin in those tire covers because they'll be important a little bit later. Well, and our audience probably needs to understand that tire covers were very popular back then because uh, almost every car had a tire on its back and people, that was a way of advertising. You could either give away stuff that had a cover, you know, give away a tire cover and then you got free advertisement from people driving around town with your uh, cover on all the time. And they still have those covers for like Jeeps and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. So for the late millennials and Gen Z that are like, huh, 1930, think about a Jeep Patriot or a big SUV with tire on the back, the chunk tire, those would cover those on the back. Mm-hmm. Now, this proved to be a hollow victory. Now, however, in 1931, the Northwest Enterprise reported a protest filed by W.H. Wilson against the Coon Chicken Inn for violating its previous agreement to continue the distribution of the tire covers. And you guessed it, the tire cover was the big faced porter on the back so just imagine not only seeing the coon car and in your newspaper uh you see just random cars with this big gaping smiling black face and coon chicken in written on his teeth riding around town now despite all this he didn't change the name and the tire covers kept coming um so despite the column saying there was some success with the repainting of the door it was a small Dried. It was not enough to fully erase the coon from Seattle or shut the business down. Hmm. Not only did Graham claim that the restaurant, which was his restaurant name, was copyrighted and therefore unchangeable, he managed to evade the lawsuit altogether just by changing the color of the logo. And oh, that was just sleight a, of hand. a little sleight of hand. So I did mention about those tire covers. We talked about those tire covers and I know it sounds strange, but those tire covers were a part of an individual protest. Now, Joseph Stanton took, you know, action, him and his friends on a very small scale. Now, in an interview recorded by Esther Mumford in 1975, Staten told her the story of his arrest in 1930. Now, he had sliced the coon image out of a tire cover. Stanton and four of his friends had created a contest. Each friend would put in 50 cents and whoever had the most coon faces off the tire after 30 days would win the pot. Okay, what a contest. I like these guys. You know, uh, it was a daring, it was full of daring do, as they say. Now, W.H. Wilson, the editor of the Northwest Enterprise, who was teaming up with the Endable ACP for that lawsuit was Stanton's employer, and he would lend Stanton his car for work. Now, one day, borrowing his boss's car and driving downtown with his friends, Stanton and watch one of his friends cut, you know, the tire cover off of a car and they all began to do it. Now, the automobile owner noticed the license plate of Wilson's car and the police traced the prank back to Joseph Stanton who was subsequently arrested and fined $3. So he lost the pot, but (laughs) he ended up defacing a horrible racist image. So today's hero is Joseph Stanton. Mm -hmm. 
Now, unfortunately, neither organized or individual protests closed the Coon Chicken Inn, which stayed open until the 50s. But as Seattle's African-American population grew and changed and civil rights laws began to become more prime, you know, prominent, the Coon Chicken Inn just quietly closed its doors to little fanfare. Now, it has popped up in weird pop culture and media spaces. Like in 1972, the Trolley Times, which was a small periodical published in Salt Lake City, where the restaurant chain was born, printed an article talking about, you know, the restaurant's history, and it had different pictures of the locations, just a retrospective of the restaurant. But then it went into this weird fictional account of a black grandfather complete with broken or what people would stereotypically think old slaves would sound like that kind of dialect who's recounting these fond memories of the Coon Inn and how all the fussing about civil rights took the fun away and grandpa quote unquote reassured his true audience white people that racism could be fun and it ought not to be taken so seriously and this was the recurring theme and discourse surrounding the coon chicken inn and other restaurants like it the fictional black grandma grandpa it continued to explain that the grams were shrewd business people and indeed they developed this restaurant concept that was effective and made diners feel like they had gone straight to the South for a real meal. Grandpa was particularly praiseworthy of the coon icon, even saying that he felt that the logo was winking and smiling at him each time he saw it go by. And that oh, is so gross. No grandpa I know would have no grandpa. No, none, none. <laughs> none oh. of my grandfathers no, would no. have. Uh, they would have been in the contest of cutting. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Boy, oh boy. Fiction, pure fiction. But go ahead. And the Coon Chicken Inn also appeared in a 2004 British mockumentary called Confederate States of America, which gives a dark, comedic, satirical look of what America would look like if the South would have won the Civil War. The Coon Chicken Inn fits right in with all the fictional racist restaurants that they had to make up for the movie. But sadly, we know this place not only existed, but people enjoyed several thousands of dinners, lunches, and breakfasts at many of these restaurants. Mm. And honestly, Aunt Kara, I'm glad this place is gone. But places like this restaurant and the restaurants that you covered so far just give a window into time when racism and white supremacy were acceptable themes for family restaurants. Mm, that makes you just, yep, makes you want to go, hmm. <laughs> Uh, it, you know, it's hard, almost hard to believe that even today, restaurants with racially offensive names still exist. Remember, though, Mammy's Cupboard is still open and Sambo's just decided to change their name in 2020. What's even harder to believe is there is a substantial number of people who don't take issue with eating in or having eaten at these places. And like we said, get angry when they leave or get angry when someone dares to question, why would Coon Chicken Inn be offensive? Mm, mm, mm. But Aunt Carol, the restaurants we've talked about have disturbing names and sordid histories, but there are some historic eateries that actually have a positive vibe and have moved the people forward. Yes. Yes, Courtney. You're you're you are right. There are some restaurants just like that, just as there have been restaurants that tried to demean and marginalize black African-Americans. There have been others that played significant roles in the civil rights movement. Well, to quote the NBC miniseries, the 60s, feed the people and we'll all get stronger. Right on, right on. So let's start with Chris's hot dogs in Montgomery, Alabama. Martin Luther King's first church posting was at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery. And the church is just steps from the green awnings of this tiny uh, little eatery that has uh, Formica tables and uh, a narrow setup. Now, before the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott propelled him to civil rights leadership, King would swing by Chris's hot dogs to say hello and pick up his morning paper. Now, it's been operating since 1917 on Dexter Avenue, and that's the very street 
remember where Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat. Now, this hot dog joint was one of the few eateries to ignore segregation laws and feed all its hungry customers equally. Now, that's a Southern landmark that definitely needs to be celebrated if it's not already. Well, you know, Courtney, I love a good hot dog. So if I'm ever in Montgomery, I'll be stopping in, not just for the hot dogs, but for the history. Now, let's keep on uh, going over into Georgia now to Pascal's in Atlanta, Georgia. Now, it's famous for its fried chicken and <laughs> mac and cheese. But it's actually Martin Luther King's association with this restaurant that put the spot on the map. King held meetings in the upstairs rooms and often in the leather upholstered booths on the, uh, that are in the main restaurant. And I'm happy to say that I actually did get to visit Pascal's once. I uh, didn't get to eat there, but I got to go and walk around and I saw those booths that I just spoke about. Now, the 1963 March on Washington is among historical events that were actually organized at Pascal's. Now, their um, restaurant is co-owned by brothers Robert and James, and they were very active in the civil rights movement. They took it upon themselves to deliver sandwiches and baskets of fried chicken to protesters and marches. They even posted bail for anybody who was arrested for fighting against segregation, and they would stay open late to shelter and feed anybody that was waiting for those people who had been arrested to be released. And that shows the power of the civil rights movement and also shows how to use your money the right way. Not everybody is a marcher or a protester, but those businesses and profits and the things behind the scenes definitely helps people on the front lines. Absolutely. There's a role for everyone to play in the movement. Now, another famed restaurant is the restored Woolworth on 5th Street in Nashville. It's recently reopened. Now, though the first lunch counter sit-in was in Greensboro, North Carolina, in 1960, the protests actually gathered momentum in Nashville, Tennessee. And many of those uh, protests were held at the Woolworth on 5th Street on the edge of downtown. Uh, so it was a centerpiece of the civil rights movement. Though it had been long neglected, uh, the lower floors had been transformed now into a soul food spot with live music and uh, a gentleman named Tim, uh, I'm sorry, Tom Morales opened the revamped Woolworth on 5th in February of 2018. And he worked with uh, local civil rights experts during the restoration to represent the building's history as accurately as possible. Uh, original details include wall tiles and handrails around the mezzanine. And the lunch counter was rebuilt as a nod to the fearless protesters who made history right there. So you can actually feel, sit down and eat where history happened all around you. Absolutely. And he respected that and maintained that history in that renovation. Now, another restaurant also in Tennessee was the Four Way in Memphis. And it's been serving fried catfish and collard greens since 1946, making it the oldest soul food restaurant in Memphis. Now, just like Pascal's, Dr. King and other civil rights leaders often dined there when they were in town. They would discuss their latest plans over baked chicken and huge slices of sticky, tangy lemon meringue pie, which some people say was Dr. King's favorite. The four-way was one of few places in the city where everyone could eat together any day of the week. There were no separate entrances and no segregated areas. Now, some uh, famous people who have just dined there and eaten its beloved soul food dishes include Gladys Knight, Aretha Franklin, the Staple Singers, and Al Green. And the restaurant is just located a few blocks from the famous Stax Records. So instead of if these walls could talk at the four-way it should be if these walls could sing oh you know how to turn a phrase my dear now one more place i want to tell about is the big apple inn in jackson mississippi now this place once rented out 
offices above it to the civil rights heroes, Fannie Lou Hamer and Medgar Evers. Now we remember Evers as the uh, NAACP leader who was assassinated outside his Jackson home by white supremacists in 1963. Now he held NAACP meetings there uh, at the Big Apple and that's where they strategized and organized protests, including the 1961 Freedom Rides. Now, owner Gino Lee, whose great-grandfather opened the Big Apple uh, in 1939, has two other locations in Jackson, each actually much more lucrative than the original Farris Street Diner that's still open. Yet, because of the history, the family ties, and the nostalgia for a time when this was the heart of a flourishing Black uh, neighborhood, he is determined not to shut its doors. Now, this place, this place here is a far much better place to put on your bucket list in Mississippi than Mammy's Cupboard. No shade. (laughs) Well, you may say no shade, but I'm tossing shade right over there on Mammy's Cupboard. (laughs) Now, Courtney, restaurants and the food served in them are often at the crux of our collective memories, good and bad. These restaurants, some monuments to systemic racism and degradation of Black African-Americans, and others that served as headquarters and planning grounds for the civil rights movement deserve to be remembered, whether their intent was for good or otherwise. You're absolutely right, Ann Carol. Food is the at the heart of a lot of people's memories. But in the meantime, listeners, if you miss us while you're cooking dinner or making lunch, you can always head over to our website and listen to one of our older podcasts, catch up on newer podcasts, or even visit us on our social media links. And that website is www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.